So we are in the book of Proverbs, walking through it cautiously. We've seen two things. We've seen, number one, that uh, there are two types of fear of the Lord. One's illegitimate for a believer. One is totally legitimate. When I understand who he is and what he's capable of, it pulls me to him. And it elicits a deep sense of fear in a wholesome, godly way. We looked at the fact that wisdom is going to basically do three things in your life. It's going to protect you from the onslaught of the enemy. Number two, this world will sting you. As Paul said, knocked down but not knocked out. The wisdom of God keeps you from being knocked out. And then thirdly, it gives you the ability for God to use you. So we're going to walk through another section on wisdom in the first chapter. Now, wisdom can come from all sorts of different places. My uh, six-year-old grandson, Wes, uh, was in his first grade classroom the other day, and they were having group time, and they were sitting on the rug, and one of his classmates, we'll call him Bobby. <laughs> Bobby looks at Mrs. Whitney, and he says, you know, Mrs. Whitney, I'm, I'm not feeling well. So Mrs. Whitney said, well, Bobby, have you taken your medicine? And he said, yes, ma'am, to which point my six-year-old grandson leaned over and said, well, don't take a lot, man. It killed Michael Jackson. So, <laughs> so wisdom can come from a lot of different sources. We're going to try to rely not on a six-year-old wisdom, but on thousands of years of wisdom in the book of Proverbs. I, I can't explain my grandson. I did some stuff I'm not allowed to brag on because his mother spanked him, and I'm just going, I'm so proud of him. So at any rate. <laughs> Look at uh, Proverbs 120. Walk with me. Listen to the metaphor. Pay attention to what he says. It's incredible. Wisdom, and remember wisdom really in the Bible is God's value system. His nature, his character, his direction for your life, whatever that is, that's God's wisdom for you. Now listen to this. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gate, she speaks. How long, O oh simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, Behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you because I have called and you refuse to listen. Stretched out my hand, no one's heeded because you've ignored all my counsel, would have none of my reproof. I will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind. When distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. I want you to think through that metaphor, okay? You've got a city where the people, remember what Jeremiah said, 1023, it is not in man to direct his steps. You've got this city, we don't know how to live. Here's God, here's the metaphor, here's God's wisdom walking through the city, even if it's noisy, it is screaming above the noise, saying, here I am. You need wisdom, here I am. It's not like God's hiding it. And you got to run to God and seek Him and do all. No, no, that wisdom is absolutely readily available. Readily available. Not just available, readily available. When I come home from the dear lease, I pass a Ferrari dealership. 
Now that's available. It's not readily available. I'm going to have a real problem with my wife when I come home and say, we don't have any retirement, but look at that car. So, it's available, but it's not readily available. Wisdom, according to Solomon, is readily available. Anybody can have it at any time. As a matter of fact, it seeks you out. You don't have to seek it out. It's trying to come to you. What God wants for you, he is desperately trying to get to you. So if I'm in this city, right, I've got three things. I, I, I want to be what God wants to be. I don't want the world to wreck me, and I don't want the enemy to get me. Here's wisdom crying aloud. What in the world would make you look down and go, you know, I, I don't want it today. What would make a person, and remember, they're in Jerusalem. They're in, they're in Israel. What would make God's people, when wisdom is screaming out, saying, here I am, I've got what you need, I can give you what you need to face life, why in the world would anybody look at that wisdom and say, I, I, I don't want it. But that's precisely the metaphor. Wisdom is seeking out God's people, and they are closing the door. It's at the head of the street, they leave. Comes by the door, they shut the door, they shut the windows. They're saying, look, we don't want it. What makes God's people not want his wisdom? That's really the question. So, let's see why. Matter of fact, we're going to look at the guy that wrote this. Because he is the one that misses it. Go to 1 Kings chapter 3. 1 Kings chapter 3. Now, I want you to listen to Solomon. This is the beginning of his life. His father's dead. You've got to remember something now when we walk into this passage. Solomon, just like Israel today, is surrounded by nations that want to kill it. Matter of fact, one of the toughest things for Israel, when you go to Israel today and you, you, Israel goes all the way to the Med with Caesarea, Caesarea on the sea, the Philistines occupy that area. So, I mean, it's, it's tough for Israel. Every nation around there, when David die, dies, has been conquered. They don't jack with David. They know not to mess with David. They know he can whip them. Solomon's come to the throne, and he knows that they're not afraid of him. He knows that. He's sure of that. He didn't kill a lion and a bear with his bare hands. He didn't conquer a bunch of nations. He's come to the throne almost as a mama's boy. And he's not tough like dad. Nobody's looking at Solomon on the throne and going, ooh, Solomon on the throne. Now, they were scared of David, his dad, but they're not scared of him. So Solomon's... Got a little fear factor here. Because he's got these nations out here that can overcome him. Now, look at this. Chapter 3, 1. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. Now, what's the problem here? Exodus 
was very clear that a Jew was not allowed to marry someone who didn't hold his beliefs. The Bible never talks about interracial marriage. It is never in there. It always talks about Old and New Testament that I don't marry somebody who doesn't share what I believe about Christ. And in this day, you didn't marry somebody who didn't share what you believed about Jehovah. That's why I said don't marry the people that surround the, the Israel. So why does he, he's got God's wisdom, but he violates it and marries this lady because Egypt's a big nation. He has an alliance with Pharaoh. He marries the daughter. So that Pharaoh, even though he's not afraid of Solomon, is not going to attack Jerusalem because his daughter is a wife of the king. So it's a smart move in his part politically, but it negates the wisdom of God. Now, look at verse 3. Solomon loved the Lord Walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. Now, he loves God. It's not like he's some kind of horrible guy. He loves God. But if he trusts the wisdom and lives in it, he's, now listen, he's going to have to trust God to have his back. And he's not sure about that. So he comes to God and he says, I want some wisdom. God's real pleased. He appears to him. He gives him wisdom. Solomon builds the temple, everything else. Look at chapter 11 of 1 Kings. Look at this. Even with the wisdom God gives him, after the temple, after the palace, all the stuff, he's still scared. Now watch this. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. Why? From the nations concerning which the Lord had said, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Why has he made all these deals? Because he's still scared. Now, again, if he lives in the wisdom of God, he can't marry them. Maybe he owns them and says, okay, I married the daughter of Pharaoh, but I can't do any more. Listen, I can't do that. He doesn't do that, though. He keeps marrying because he, these nations are around him, and all of a sudden one pops up, and he's nervous. One mouths, he's nervous. And so he's creating these marriages against God's wisdom because he's not sure. Amazingly enough, he's not sure that God can honor his wisdom in a way that will protect Solomon. And so, look down in verse 4. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. His heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David, his father, had done. Couldn't trust the wisdom. It's there. He has it. He has a supernatural endowment of wisdom. But he can't pull it into his life because he can't trust the father to have his back if he does what the father tells him to do. He can't employ the wisdom because he doesn't trust the father. It's not because he doesn't love him. It says he loved the Lord. 
But in violating the wisdom over time, he quit loving the Lord and embraced other gods. It's like finding out next week that I'm worshiping in a mosque. And then I now look at you and say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I also believe in Allah. He switched everything. Couldn't live out the wisdom because he couldn't trust the Father to have his back. It's always the issue. Look at 1 Samuel 13. King Saul, remember God didn't want the people to have a king. They asked for a king, so he gave him Saul. This is another one of those examples, by the way, that tall people are bad. Saul was a head taller than everybody else. He's going to mess everything up. Never trust tall people. So, just sharing my heart here from the Word of God. Now, look in verse 5. Philistines mustered. Remember, back up. Verse 2, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. Okay, so he's got 3,000 men with him to fight the Philistines. Now, watch this. Verse 5. Philistines muster to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots. 30,000 chariots. There are 10 chariots over on the other side for every one guy that he has. 6,000 horsemen. There are two horsemen for every one guy he's got. And troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. This is not good. Now here's what Solomon faces. Verse 6, when the men of Israel saw they were in trouble for the people were hard-pressed. That's why the Bible is a book of understatement. Okay? You got 3,000 guys around. You look across the world, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and even more warriors. And you got 3,000 guys. And then it says at the end of the chapter, only two people in Israel had a weapon. That was Saul and Jonathan. Nobody else has a weapon. You're saying they were like a hole. And all these guys are across you, and you're standing there, and you're looking at this. Yeah, hard-pressed is, is the idea. Now, watch verse 8. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. Who's Samuel? Now listen. Saul represents the state. Samuel represents the church. Now watch this. But Samuel didn't come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. Yeah, they were. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he'd finished offering, Samuel came. Saul went out to greet him, and Samuel said, what have you done? He said, well, I saw the people were scattering from me. You didn't come. Philistines had mustered. Boom, 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 boom. I forced myself right and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said, you have done foolishly. He takes the kingdom away from Saul. As a matter of fact, according to this chapter, Jesus was meant to sit on the throne of Saul, not the throne of David. But he's removed from the throne of Saul and put on the throne of David because of this moment. Now, what's the problem here? Why is this such a big deal that Saul offers a sacrifice? I mean, he's right. All his men are leaving. He's got this massive army. He's standing there. He's alone. Why, why can't he offer the sacrifice? Because God wanted Israel to understand something very clearly. They chose a king. But that king was not above God's law. And that he didn't have the right to offer it. Only Samuel had the right. And they wanted him to understand that. By Saul offering the sacrifice, what he was saying is, 
The states over the church, it's interesting in the Bible, we have this big thing about church and state. In the Bible, the state is always under the church. It's under the directives of the morality of God that the church holds. So here, by acting foolishly, God had to remove him as king because he couldn't have a king, basically said to his country, I am above God's directives. So God takes a kingdom away from him and gives it to whom? David. Now, David is distinct from Solomon and Saul. He at one point is being chased down by Saul, right? He kills Goliath. Everybody starts singing. Saul slain his thousands. David is tens of thousands. Saul's jealous pretty soon. And Saul realizes this is the guy that God's prepped. Everybody in Israel realizes this is the guy God's prepped. And when this comes about, Saul begins to try to kill David. And David begins to be chased. And he and his men are hiding, out in the, they're hiding out in the desert. They're hiding out in caves. They're being chased. They can't go home to their families. I mean, their life is a nightmare. And finally, one day, David and his men are hiding in this cave. Now, this happens twice, by the way. Saul comes in the cave to relieve himself. And his men look at David and say, Hey, God has delivered him into your hand. Let's kill him. We can go home. We can watch a little football. We can kick back. We can relax. Let's go home and get this thing fixed. David looks at them and says, can't do it. I will not touch the anointing of God because his wisdom does not allow me to do that. I don't care if it means we have to travel more and we have to hide more and you can't go home to your wives and you can't enjoy the day. We are going to do it right. David never does king, kill King Saul. He will spend months with his men hiding out in the middle of nowhere. But when Saul is killed on Mount Gilboa with his son Jonathan, within six years, the entire nation, but at the very beginning, most of the nation will turn to David and say, you're our king. Why do they say that? God gave you the throne because David didn't take it. And so they realized he had been given it by Almighty God because he didn't take the throne. David trusted God's wisdom no matter what it cost him. Saul couldn't do that. Solomon couldn't do that. It's why we don't take it. When you're a kid in Bible school, you sing a song about Joshua and Jericho. Now, you've got to understand, Joshua, to me, had the greatest pressure on him of anybody in the Word of God. Moses is dead. They've been wandering for 40 years. Moses did all these great plagues, drowned the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. I mean, this guy was a big dog. Here's Joshua. He's kind of an average guy. He comes up, they're ready to go in the land. He stands up. He's already under pressure, right? And I love the fact that his men come to him. And they say to him, hey, uh, here's the deal. Nobody's going to jack with you. We got your back. As long as one thing's true. If God's with you like he was with Moses, we're good to go. Have a nice day. Now, if you're Joshua, man, that's the ultimate pressure. So they get into the land. You've got to remember, these people wander in the desert for 40 years. They're ready to get in the land. They're pumped. And sure enough, what happens? God takes the, takes the Jordan River, opens it up. They walk through it. So now they know, man, God's on the throne. Let's go kick some face. They're ready to go. They're just like 
And the Aggies in the days of the bonfire waiting for Texas. They're in the tunnel. They're ready to go again. We got them to go. And these guys are pumped and they're ready. And they step in the land. First city is Jericho. They look at it. And you can imagine. They're looking at Joshua and go, okay, how are we going to do this, man? This is great. Let's tear that city down. What are we going to do? So Joshua prays. Here's what God says. Listen. Here's what I want you to do. Uh, tomorrow, I want you to walk around the city and come home. Next day, walk around the city, walk around the city six days. And on the seventh day, walk around seven times and the walls will fall down and everything will be cool. Trust me. So when Solomon goes back to his guys, right? I mean, when, when, when Joshua goes back to his guys and they're going, okay, what are we going to do? What did God tell you? Well, uh, tomorrow. Yeah, what are we going to do? Where are we going? Well, tomorrow. We're going to walk around the outside the city, come home and watch some football. Oh, okay, yeah. So we're, we're going to reconnoiter tomorrow. Got it. What are we going to do the next day? Well, uh, the next, next day we're, we're going to walk around some more. What about the next day? Well, uh, we're, we're going to walk around for six days. What? Yeah, yeah, six days. What's going to happen on the seventh day? Then we're going to attack, right? Well, no. Uh, we're, we're going to walk around seven times on that day. And when we're done, the walls are going to fall down. What do you think, boys? <laughs> now, if you're Joshua and you go to bed, right, after that night, you can tell your guys are disappointed because they want to absolutely whip some people. They've been wandering the woods for 40 years. They trust God. They want to do some damage. And they want to have at it. And they've got to walk around and wait. If you're Joshua, I'm telling you, it's the longest seven days of your life. Because if you come to that seventh day and you walk around seven times and those walls don't fall down, what are these guys going to do? They're going to take you out and stone you, buddy. But he waited. And waited. And on the seventh day, when they walked seven times and blew the trumpet, the walls fell down. It's interesting. The archaeologist Kathleen Kenyon even studied the walls and discovered, as a matter of fact, that is exactly what happened. And it's interesting to me. When you read the Old Testament, all the way till today, we leave for Israel in a few days. Still true today. There are only two times when Israel does it right as a nation. They do it right under Joshua, and they do it right under David. The two men who trusted God's wisdom no matter what the cost. It's there. It's available. And the reason we struggle with it is not because we don't love God, not because we're a bunch of horrible people. We struggle with it because there are things that it demands of us that sometimes we just don't know that God has our back or not. And we have to trust Him. Nineteenth. The anniversary is always October 31st. This was the 500th year of that anniversary. But it's really this week. 500 years ago, in Germany, a professor monk 
heard a guy preaching outside his uh, monastery. He was a fundraiser. His name was Tetzel. He was raising money for St. Peter's Basilica for the Catholic Church and for the Pope. And so he would go into towns, and then, of course, they believed in purgatory. You could be in purgatory for a thousand years. So Tetzel, in this great sermon, he was a great preacher, and he said, look, if you put some money in this little deal here, you can get your uncle, your parents, your friends, your kids out of purgatory. A little bit of money. As a matter of fact, he had a final little jingle that he used at the end of the invitation. He said, of course, he could do it with great power. And Flair, he said, when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Man, people are like, <laughs> popping the money down. Martin Luther realized this is baloney. You can't buy your way out of this because he just discovered Jesus Christ. So 500 years ago today, he did an unusual thing. He didn't mean for it to go anywhere. The church doors in that day were bulletin boards. They didn't have... I know this is hard for some of you. They didn't have texting back then. Or even email. Or even landline phones. So they had bulletin boards, though, and they were always the church door. So Martin Luther, this church door at Wittenberg is covered up with bulletin papers. Martin Luther goes up, and probably he didn't even do it. Somebody else did it. He has 95 reasons why this indulgent stuff is wrong and why the Pope needs to fix it and the church needs to correct it. He had no idea. He said nothing against the Pope, nothing against the church. He just said, look, we got to get rid of these 95 things. This is ridiculous. It was just a call for an academic debate on indulgences. That's all it was. You fast forward four years later. He's in a room in the city of Worms in Germany. The representative of the Pope is there to excommunicate him, which I realize for us, big deal, but you've got to understand something. And it still goes on 300 years after this. The church and the state are the same. That's why it was called the Holy Roman Empire. The emperor and the Pope were the two great powers. And they worked together and they controlled each other. It was always a battle. But the church and the state were married. He gets excommunicated. Now he's not only out of the church, he's an enemy of the emperor who will hunt him down and kill him. So he gets in this room in Worms. He's written all this stuff. They put all his books on the table. And the guy from the Pope comes in and he goes, Okay, we're not going to debate today. I got, I got a question. Anything in here you don't like that you will speak against and anything you want to recant, that's all the question. If you can't recant, we're going to excommunicate you and you're going to be an outlaw of the empire. So Martin Luther said, Look, I, I need some time. Of course, Pope's guy said, man, you're a professor of theology. Why do you need time to decide that what you've written in these books are valid or not? You're going to recant or not? He said, I need some time. So the Pope's <laughs> emissary said, look, all right, 24 hours. The emperor's in the room with the representative of the Pope. 24 hours. So Martin Luther sits down with his friends. He comes back in the next day. They said, okay, here's the emperor. Charles I of Spain, here's the Pope's representative. All the powers that can possibly array themselves against Martin Luther are right there. He said, what are you going to do? Are you going to recant or not? Martin Luther said, you know, if you can show me from the Scriptures, which are bigger than the Pope and the church, I'll recant. But if not, here I stand. I can't do anything else.
excommunicated him. He became an outlaw from the emperor. They actually took him to a, to a castle in Wartburg and hit him for months before they released him. Do you know why you sit where you sit? With the belief that this is over all of us and that Jesus Christ is the only hope you have? Do you understand why you sit and you get correct theology all across America because this man took the wisdom of God bought it, secured it, and no matter what the cost, he believed God had his back. It's available. It's here. And we don't not use it because we don't love him. We don't use it because we have trouble trusting him. Never been a time, listen to me, never been a time when a man trusts the wisdom of God that he didn't win in this world. Or when, when he left it. Never been a time when a man ignored the wisdom of God and didn't fail in this world and fail when he left it. Our God is legit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, your wisdom. The men in the scripture that missed it, the men in the scripture that got it. All I ask today, Father, let us be a people that get it. Thank you for who you are and what you've done. In Jesus Christ's name. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed. As God speaks to your heart this morning, whatever decision... He lays on your heart. You may just need to come down here and kneel and pray. We'll be glad to pray with you. As he speaks to your heart this morning, you come.